Welcome to Resistance Roundtable, broadcast on WPKN the second Saturday of each month, where we engage in conversation about local and nationwide organizing for a more just and democratic America during this pivotal and dangerous moment in our nation's history. Hosting today's show is Ruth Ann Baumgartner, who is a longtime instructor in literature and writing at Central Connecticut State University, member of the Executive Committee of the Connecticut Conference of the American Association of University Professors, who also serves as a member of the Board of Directors and a theatrical director with the Westport Community Theater. Ruth Ann is here with us in the studio today. And joining us by phone from his modest bungalow on the island of Bora Bora is Richard Hill, host of WPCAN show's first Tuesday rainy day radio and organic farm stand. And he's also a rotating host of Mike Check. Richard is a musician, teacher, and mentor with Youth Radio Connecticut. I'm Scott Harris, host of WPCAN's weekly public affairs program, Counterpoint, on Monday nights. And... And I also produce the syndicated Between the Lines radio news magazine, which both Ruth Ann and Richard are contributors. In a few minutes, we'll be joined by Gerald Horn, Morris Professor of History at the University of Houston, to talk about his book, The Counter-Revolution of 1776, Slave Resistance and the Origins of the United States of America, as well as the right-wing campaign to ban books in the nation's school systems and censor the teaching of America's painful history of slavery and racism. Glad you could all join us this morning. And uh, Ruthann, how are you today? Well, I usually say, just present, don't apologize. But I have to apologize because I have just been in the hospital for a couple of weeks um, treating something that I always thought of as a childhood crisis. That is an appendix appendix crisis. So I'm not sure where my mind is going to be. It's been staying with me long enough to come with confidence. But if I go somewhere, just bear with me. I'll get back to it eventually. I'll have to kick you under the console. Here. <laughs> That's right. Richard, how are you doing this morning? I am awake. And uh, <laughs> I thank you both for indulging my um, difficulty I have in getting down there early enough to do the show. Cool. I want to mention that uh, my... Uh, Commuting to Bora Bora has been taking place in dugout canoe because I am uh, not really ready yet to uh, take that long flight with uh, Omicron still at large. Oh, well, that's good. Well, I, I think, uh, as we usually do, we'll, we'll hear from Ruth Ann some of the things you've been thinking about this tumultuous week, as every week seems to be. Mm. And um, then we'll move on to uh, Richard and, and then get to uh, Dr. Horn about his book and the censorship, uh, censorship storm we're we're living through. Right. Well, I've been um, I've been thinking about a lot of things, and they keep coming together in uh, interesting ways, but not always in the same ways. Um, mostly, I've been thinking about this whole issue of of uh, censorship, and in my in my little rant that's about to come, the notion that good is like a candy jar; it's a limited quantity, and if I give you some. Then there's less for me, and so I can't possibly share. Uh, I find that in, in the, the resurrection of all the f- school controversies, what can be taught, what should be taught, um, and in a lot of other controversies too. So I tried to put things together, and uh, well, here goes. It's called Freedom to Read. Most of you in the audience this morning have heard the name Marjorie Stoneman Douglas as the name of a high school where a terrible slaughter by a young human happened several years ago and where the students took their rights and their rage into their own hands and created March for Our Lives. Many remember Stoneman Douglas, she died not long ago at the age of 108, as an American journalist, writer, feminist, and environmentalist known for her staunch defense of the Everglades against efforts to drain it and reclaim it for development. Her most influential work was the book The Everglades, River of Grass, which redefined the Everglades as a treasured river instead of a worthless swamp. Its impact has been compared to that of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. I remember her as the writer who opened my eyes to racism and its terrible costs to individuals, to the nation, and to human life. I was three years old when my mother, having added a second child to the family, quickly tired of my importunate requests to be read to especially when she was trying to calm a colicky baby. So, lifelong teacher, she whipped out a copy of Reading with Phonics and taught me to read for myself. I became an insatiable and indiscriminate reader. 
By the age of seven or so, I had exhausted the children's section of the local library and persuaded the librarian by reading a page of Charles Dickens, I believe, out loud to her and answering questions about it to let me check out books from anywhere in the library. One book that caught my eye in young adults was Freedom River by Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. The book was first published in 1953, so I'm going to guess that I checked it out and read it somewhere around age nine. I don't think we had covered much American history in school by then, beyond hanging pictures of cherry branches in the school windows in February. Arithmetic, handwriting, and reading were my academic passions. I think I remember reading the book lying on the lawn on warm afternoons, so I probably was reading during summer vacation. I have purposely not reread any of the book before writing these notes, so I may be wrong, but I remember opening to a description of a sunlit beach at low tide with a dark figure of a boy sprawled on the sand. The boy sits up, and another white boy emerges from the reeds and jumps him. They fight, then break and run. A person who is actively reading has been transported to another reality, the reality of the book, and enters eagerly into the minds and lives of the characters. What happens is happening, and the reader depends on his or her own mind and the clues from the text to participate in that event, feel and respond to it, hurtle forward to stay with the action or understand the emotions and situations. Eventually, for reasons that evolve in the mind, the reader makes judgments about the world of the book and its characters. And in this way, the book gradually transforms the reader into a sharer. Recent readers' remarks you can find online about this book are mixed, but all note the eye-opening experience of reading it and generally praise the author's appreciation of the people and cultures represented by the central characters and her care to empower each with initiative and participation in his own salvation, while at the same time affirming the greater strength they acquire when they work together. The ending is more open than happy, <coughs> that because of the story that precedes it allows hope. Several of the readers mention the value of having other readers, including adults, to discuss the book with. The effects of the book on me as a young reader not from Florida, not male, and not yet of any particular culturally conscious identity was to feel a personal stake and urgency in the civil rights movement that was developing in society at large, in this sense a lifelong commitment. I'm also of the generation who, because The Catcher in the Rye was banned from the school library and curriculum, got together with a few friends to read The Catcher in the Rye and talk about it, read more Salinger novels, and seek out more banned books. Knowledge, happiness, freedom, power, prosperity, health, none of these is a zero-sum game, a candy jar, where more for you does mean less for me. But our culture, and generally colonial cultures, will tend to see these goods as such and jealously guard the valuables from thieving others. We also have to acknowledge that when a colonial power fails, it naturally expects retribution from those it has oppressed and arms itself with weapons and laws to protect itself from the revenge it expects. Few colonial powers seem to think that opening the processes of restructuring for the greater good is not the same as letting all hell break loose. My friend and sometime collaborator in community theater, Amanda Goodman, recently published a comment on Facebook about the crucial freedom to read. It was in response to the attempts in Florida to ban Mouse and other books judged controversial by parents and or politicians. This current wave of suppression of thought isn't new, and it's just as dangerous as earlier attempts to keep growing children ignorant in the name of keeping them somehow pure. She says she read Mouse when she was in the seventh grade, and uh, had been told by the teacher that it would be an intense book because it was about despicable events. She then goes on to say everyone should read this book, preferably read it alone and then have adults and other kids to read it, to discuss it with. Um, she also talks about the books of Judy Bloom and how much they had to do with, uh, with her own ability to grasp the process of growing up, uh, and especially the process of growing up as a female physical entity. Um, she says, finally, instead of ripping books off the shelves that detail graphic and horrifying events in order to protect your children, why don't you read the book with them? Let them ask you questions, ask them questions. As long as our children have the internet at their fingertips, they have an instant window into far worse things. Uh, sometimes history is messy, despicable, unbelievably, and dirty, but it happened. We need to show our children and grandchildren where we were so they can see how far we've come. Uh, don't take books away from children. And this is my closing. I love the book Fahrenheit 451. 
and because of its immediacy and the great performance of Oscar Werner, I love the movie too. For, the, for me, the most amazing moment is when Montag first dares to read a book, ironically by the light of his room-sized government-operated television screen. He chooses David Copperfield, perhaps almost by chance, and reads aloud, Chapter One, I Am Born. For those of us who have also read that book, these words bring the novel into a moment with, its, with full force. And the more you think about it, the more powerful the choice is. Young David Copperfield is under the power of his mother's second husband, a narrow-minded, controlling man who has no sympathy for wife or child. Learning is rote and errors are corporally punished. His mother's gestures of affection are suppressed. We see the full meaning of lonely child. One day he seeks comfort in his father's old room, complete with his father's boyhood reading, primarily adventure tales in which lonely boys fight back against villains and win the day. David describes himself with this new resource as reading as if for life. And this is what reading does for Montag and for all of us. We don't have to agree with or even believe everything we read. And indeed, the more we read, then the more we are able to challenge or question for ourselves. This is growth as intellectual beings and social creatures and free minds. This isn't candy in a finite candy jar. It's the freedom without which democracy is impossible. And this is what the book police of Florida PTAs and elsewhere are trying to achieve. Fight back. Thank you, Ruth. Well, I'm going to um, get uh, our guest this morning here on Resistance Roundtable, uh, Gerald Horn, on the line. But, Richard, while I do that, maybe you could preview some of the things that we'll be talking about later in the program. I'm going to talk about the crisis in Ukraine and the possibility of U.S. military involvement there. And for my spiel, I'm going to pull a Rachel Maddow on us and take us back to 1989, the period of the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the socialist Eastern Bloc countries. Uh, that was when Francis Fukuyama, you may recall, published his treatise called The End of History, which he had the, actually the good grace to uh, uh, punctuate with a question mark. Um, the en End of History proposes that um, we're ab about to enter an era of complete quiescence in terms of political struggle, and that uh, since we've overcome our main competitors, fascism and communism, there should be no longer any serious competition for liberal democracy and the market economy. So that's the preamble to the situation, I think, which connects directly to our campaign to expand NATO to many European countries and to right up to the border of the former Soviet Union. So I'll continue later. All right. Richard, we do have uh, our guest this morning here on Resistance Roundtable on the line, and that's Professor Gerald Horn. Dr. Horn holds the Moore Professorship of History in African American Studies at the University of Houston, and his research has addressed issues of racism and a variety of relations uh, involving labor, politics, civil rights, international relations, and war. Dr. Horn is the author of more than 30 books. His recent titles include The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century, and The Counter-Revolution of 1776, Slave Resistance, and The Origins of the United States of America, a topic we'll be discussing today with Dr. Horn. Dr. Horn, thank you so much for, for joining us on Resistance Roundtable this morning. We're very happy you could be thank here you. with us. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, Ruthie Ann Baumgartner and myself, Scott Harris, we're here in the studio. And our co-host, Richard Hill, on the phone has our first question for you. Professor Horn, it's great to hear you again. I appreciate the generosity with which you lend us your time on the air, Resistance Roundtable. I'm, I'm not sure if this is the second or third visit, but... They've all been extremely stimulating and provocative. Professor Warren, we're here to discuss one of your books. I believe it was published in 2014, but it's now back on the table for discussion, and that is The Counter-Revolution of 1776, Slave Resistance and the Origins of the United States of America. Now, that in and of itself is quite a provocative title, and it suggests a very different version of the origin story of the United States than 
the one we learned as school children and which has been the has really been celebrated for the past 240 plus years what is the central thesis of your book and how does it dismantle the orthodox uh, explanation of the causes for the American Revolution. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. Second of all, uh, your audience needs to realize that it's not only myself that's seeking a new narrative that would shed light, for example, upon the talk nowadays about fascism arriving in the United States, the talk about coups as reflected in a striking op-ed by three U.S. military men in the Washington Post a few weeks ago. And I would add to this list the filmmaker Raul Peck of Haitian origin, who did a documentary, Exterminate All the Brutes, about settler colonialism, which helps to describe what is unfolding right now in North America, although that descriptor is curiously absent, even from the vocabularies of many on the left. Of course, there's Nicole Hannah-Jones and her 1619 project, published by the New York Times, which rather provocatively suggested that slavery had something to do with 1776, which, as you know, replicates the point that I made in the book you referenced. There's the books by the late scholar uh, Tyler Stovall of UC Berkeley, his book White Freedom. Uh, I think the title says it all in describing 1776. And then there's the book by the late philosopher uh, Charles Mills, The Racial Contract, there's the play by the paramount black intellectual Ismail Reed, uh, which is a send-up and a spoof of the Disney-come-Broadway extravaganza, speaking of Hamilton. And I think all of these authors and creators and scholars and writers are seeking a story that sheds light on the present, that sheds light on January 6th. It's clear that the old story is no longer sustainable, about the United States being an epicenter of democracy with that kicked off in 1776. Now, what's interesting is that many who consider themselves to be radical have basically abandoned the class struggle battle station because people of African descent are not only a so-called race, they were an exploited group of workers. And radicals tell us that class struggle is a locomotive of history. And so if you look at the traditional story, of 1776, on the one hand, historians have known for some time that black people did not stand alongside the slave masters, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, uh, Patrick Henry at all, in terms of combating London. They were engaged in class struggle against their oppressors. But putting that forward obviously introduces a rupture into the traditional history of the founding of the United States. So historians have sort of glided past that fact. And you see this reflected, interestingly enough, in the Hollywood film, The Patriot with Mel Gibson, where in terms of trying to uh, tell this uplifting story about the revolt against British rule, uh, there is an anomaly in terms of what, how the Africans are reacting to this epical episode. So in short, uh, we argue, not only myself but others, that the 1776 was a counter-revolution, not unlike settler revolts that unfolded in Algeria in the 1950s, in Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, in 1965, where, in fact, the uh, leader of the European minority, Ann Smith, said explicitly he was walking in the footsteps of 1776. And then there is the anomaly of Canada, which is a kind of control group that is to say, both were under British rule. South of the Canadian border, there was a revolt. North, there wasn't. But yet today, uh, despite the so-called freedom convoy, uh, Canada has the uh, first indicator of attention to the needs of your citizens with a single-payer health care system. And the United States, as you know, has this jerry-built system uh, that hardly uh, covers uh, the majority of the population, in Canada, which did not revolt against British rule, you have a stronger left-wing movement, particularly in British Columbia. And in the United States, of course, the left-wing movement, I'm afraid to say, is not as strong as in Canada, which is a gross understatement. Likewise, in Australia, another former British colony, 
uh, for decades now, you've had the eruption of what are called history wars, uh, a grand debate about the origins of that settler colony. We, we in the United States are just arriving at history wars, and I think that a lot of it has to do with the mythology of 1776, which was supposedly this great leap forward for humanity. Certainly it was a great leap forward for many of European descent. How can anybody credibly with a straight face argue it was a great leap forward for Native Americans who lost their land or for Africans who had the chains on their wrists and ankles tightened and then saw their slave masters expand their leadership of the slave trade into Cuba by the 1790s and to Brazil by the 1840s. So in sum, that is the substance of the argument I have put forward joined with others. Thanks very much for that very uh, clear summary. I wanted to sort of follow up by maybe drilling into the what I think is is the central and maybe most controversial point that you make in your book, which is that the revolution, or we might say so-called revolution of 1776, was fought, was motivated by a desire to forestall the British crown from banning, banishing slavery, and thereby that that would, could roll over to the colonies and cause the, the Confederation of Colonies that became the United States to have to ban slavery as well. Could you pursue that thought a bit? Well, first of all, uh, as I argue in the book, you can't understand 1776 unless you understand 1688 the so-called Glorious Revolution in London, whereby the rising merchant class elbowed aside the monarch, clipped the wings of the monarch to the point where today, although being one of the richest persons on planet Earth, Queen Elizabeth, politically is a kind of figurehead, although I could utter a footnote that talks about how the governor general, the representative of the queen in places like Australia and Grenada, have helped to execute coup d'etat, but that's another story for another time. And with the merchants uh, grabbing the lucrative nature of the African slave trade, the deregulation of the African slave trade, if you like, the era of free trade in Africans, as I call it, you see an exponential expansion of slavery, uh, which then reaches the Caribbean in the first place. Uh, keep in mind that up until the middle part of the 18th century, London thought the Caribbean was more profitable than the North American mainland. But what happens is that people did not want to be enslaved. They engage in slave revolts, and then you have a great trek to the North American mainland. But what happens there is that slave revolts are not escaped there either. New York, 1712, New York, 1741, North Carolina, excuse me, South Carolina, and the Stonewall's Revolt, 1739. At the same time, London is trying to keep a lid on a sprawling empire that includes the crown jewel that is India. Today, India has a population of about 1.3 billion. London's is just north of 60 million. So London has to rely more heavily upon black soldiers, including in North America. And I, in the introduction to the book, I talk about black soldiers under the Union Jack roughing up settlers in your neck of the woods in, in New England. And at the same time, you see that uh, London fights this so-called French and Indian War, 1756 to 1763, to uh, basically oust France from North America. They tried to impose taxes against the settlers to subsidize that conflict. And at the same time, the Crown suggests that the real estate speculators led by George Washington should refrain from moving west, coming into conflict with the indigenous population stealing their land, forcing London to expend blood and treasure, that too is a trigger for 1776. 1776 was all about land and labor, like most profound ruptures in the history of the North Atlantic. And I should also say that you should posit 1776 not only with 1688, but 1836 with another counter-revolution, Texas receding from Mexico after Mexico uh, moves to abolish slavery in 1829. And then, of course, the final coup de resistance, uh, which is 1861, uh, when the descendants of uh, 1776 revolt against the, the Lincoln government in order to continue this tawdry and sordid tale. 
but for various reasons, which I don't have time to go into, they're defeated. So I don't think you can understand 1776 without understanding what comes before 1688 and what comes after 1836 and 1861. Professor Horn, I, I had just a question on the uh, on. The Great Britain side of the equation, as you said, the colonists were concerned that uh, Britain at that time was moving towards the abolition of slavery. But as I understand it, there there was a law passed in, what was it, 1807, but the slave trade wasn't abolished in Britain and all their colonies until 1833. So that's like some 57 years after the American Revolution. Could you give us uh, some more context to understand why the colonists in America were concerned that Britain was moving towards the abolition of slavery? Anyone who knows anything about capitalism knows that when you invest, you not only invest in terms of the profitability of Facebook today, you look at the profitability of Facebook tomorrow, And if there is a prospect that their uh, profits and revenues are heading south, then you may want to pull out. And so 1772, with Somerset's case, which is, by the way, represented in a Hollywood film, uh, Bell, uh, starring Google and Bapa Roa, uh, which talks about uh, how London uh, in 1772 moved to abolish slavery in England, quickly followed by uh, Scotland, for example. And this is a, sends a signal to the slave-owning class. Now, certainly, it's, it's just like uh, looking at what's happening today in the United States, for example. The uh, socialist count collapsed 30 years ago, and we're just beginning to feel, I think, some of the reverberations in 2022. It takes a while for historical events to impose their logic. But you not only have to look at London in isolation – you have to look at London in the context of global events. First of all, with 1776, you see one of the most uh, lucrative markets for enslaved Africans lost to London, number one. Number two, there's the Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804, which ignites a general crisis of the slave system and then begins to challenge London's cash cow in neighboring Jamaica, Then, of course, with the Haitian Revolution, you begin to see Haiti beginning to sponsor slave revolts, not only in the Caribbean, uh, in London's backyard, uh, but to a degree in North America as well. And so it seems to me a little one-sided to suggest that London was tardy in terms of abolished slavery in 1833 when supposedly the epicenter of humanity, the great leap forward for democracy – uh, takes eight to, to 1861 to do the same thing. And then with the end result of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands being slaughtered. I think that's the context for understanding London's maneuvers. And of course, with any other, like any other political contestation, uh, there's contestation in London uh, with regard to whether or not the slave trade and slavery uh, should be abolished. It, it's, a, it's a bitter political struggle. Uh, in the United States, of course, what happens is that there is a repression of abolitionist voices, not least in the South. It becomes illegal to circulate abolitionist material. You have uh, black abolitionists like David Walker, the author of David Walker's Appeal, you can find it online, still worth reading, who mysteriously disappeared somehow. Uh, Of course, he was living in New England at the time, as I recall. So this is the broader context for understanding uh, these profound events of 250-odd years ago. Professor Horn, uh, our co-host Ruth Ann Baumgartner has a a question and comment for you. Yeah, this is more a question about a question. Um, First first of all, uh, how can I sign up for your seminar? Because when I I was reading your your articles, I thought, I have so much reading I haven't done. And I've been reading my whole life, you know, so it's not as if I was wasting my time. It was like I was in the the next room in the library. it's it's uh, overwhelming, really, to to try to think along with you, um, and it's very interesting to try to think along with you. So I had this question. In my constant battle to prevent undergraduate students from thinking of research as a matter of looking up answers to questions and finding some good quotes to put along with, um, I call it Uh, When I talk about research to students, I call it a dialogue between what you know, what you hear, uh, and how you make sense of it, and where you find the rifts 
between what you know and what suddenly challenges what you know. So I, I, I call it the wait what, wait what moment. And I was wondering if, you're, if all this um, intricately related and exciting scholarship that you've done started with a wait what moment for you, that, that you, came, you had been moving along fairly confidently with an idea and suddenly something, uh, you learned something that disrupted the whole thing. Could you put your finger on anything like that? Well, sure. I mean, just in terms of my own genealogy, uh, I'm one of the last blacks of the generation that experienced Jim Crow. And when I got involved in history some decades ago, I was trying to understand why Jim Crow began to retreat when it did. And the only answer that made sense to me that I wrote up in a number of books was putting in the global context in terms of the rise of a socialist camp. Uh, the United States during the Cold War finds it difficult to win hearts and minds as Africa and the Caribbean are coming to independence, and that creates an objective pressure that leads to the erosion of the most egregious aspects of Jim Crow. Then I began to take that argument back in time, because it seemed to me that the global pressure uh, also helps to explain abolition, uh, which I just uh, referenced with regard to the rise of Haitian Revolution, the pressure it puts on uh, British uh, colonies in Jamaica, Barbados, Antigua, etc. And then, uh, in, in terms of uh, the argument that we're discussing today, uh, since that the 2014 book on 1776, I've written two other books on the 17th century uh, prelude to 1776 and on the 16th century prelude to 1776. And so, in all of those recent books, I've also tried to construct a kind of global argument and talk about how that impinges on domestic relations. The United States is not a thing in itself, although many people would prefer to think so. It does not exist in isolation from global trends and global currents, mm. uh, which is, I think, a lesson we're learning perhaps to our detriment today as we speak. Let me reintroduce our guests here on Resistance Roundtable. We're speaking today with Gerald Horn, Morris Professor of History at the University of Houston, to talk about his book, The Counter-Revolution of 1776, Slave Resistance and the Origins of the United States of America. Richard, did you have um, further questions for Dr. Horn this morning? Yeah, let me see if I can uh, formulate something that will bring us into our contemporary political climate. We are looking at this wave of racial disharmony, racial assaults, voter suppression aimed, at least in, in large part, against African Americans and other people of color. And now a pushback against efforts, the type of efforts that you're engaged in, which is the, creating a, a valid and deep historiography of the development of the different strains of, of our own history in the United States. We have, we have a pushback against that, which is resulting in, at the grassroots level, I guess you could say, school boards and, and governors and, and all kinds of other uh, reactionary actors trying to exclude discussions about race, gender, and other topics that could uh, ruffle the feathers of their beloved 12-year-olds. Can you create sort of a through line from the research you did on the revolution to this phenomenon we're witnessing today, where book banning, <laughs> soon to be burning probably, is becoming the norm across the country. Well, to begin with, uh, I'm rereading uh, the magnum opus by W.E.B. Du Bois, Black Reconstruction, for a lengthy review in the New York-based weekly, The Nation. And you may recall that when Black Reconstruction is published in 1935, it is not part of the historical consensus. And so far as it lambastes uh, slavery, it's not portrayed as this moonlight and Magnolian phenomenon that you see in the early stages of the Hollywood blockbuster Birth of a Nation or its close cousin Gone with the Wind. And likewise, he portrays Reconstruction, the period following slavery, 1865 to about 1876, culminating in what Du Bois calls, quote, the counter-revolution of 1876, unquote. He portrays uh, Reconstruction as a grand period of 
halting and tentative steps toward a, a kind of social democracy. And what happened, of course, over the decades is that Du Bois's unique perspective then leapfrogs to the point where it's the new historical consensus. I'm now suggesting that we're living through a similar period. Uh, I, I reference again the creators, as I mentioned a moment ago, Nicole Hannah-Jones, Ishmael Reed, Tyler Stovall, Charles Mills, Raul Peck. I would also add the Euro-American filmmaker, Fran Causey, and her wonderful documentary, The Long Shadow. Uh, not to mention uh, Roxanne Dunbar-Artiz and her book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States. And so we're at this uh, inflection point where a new narrative is trying to uh, bust through, if you'd like. And of course, there's resistance. <laughs> there's resistance, not least, because during the preceding historical epic, uh, uh, talking about the Cold War, the left wing was weakened, debilitated in the United States, in fact, across the globe, uh, strengthening like a seesaw, the right wing. And so busting through and creating a new consensus is going to be very, very difficult. And uh, there, are going, there are going to be casualties. Uh, I might be one, for example. But I think it's inevitable if humanity is to survive, we're going to need this new consensus because the old, the old story is just sort of ludicrous. Uh, enrollment in history classes and colleges are plummeting through the basement. As Arnold Schwarzenegger once said mm -hmm. about his California Republican Party, he said, we're dying at the box, box office. Well, that's what's happening to history departments. They're dying at the box office. Students are craving a new narrative, a new story, and they're just not going to buy the old story because it doesn't make sense. It's not explanatory. It doesn't shed light on how and why in this so-called grand democracy there's voter suppression, insurrections, police terror that disproportionately afflicts uh, black people in particular, uh, terror campaigns against Asian Pacific people, that has increased exponentially in recent years, concomitant, of course, with the rise of the People's Republic of China. And so this is the larger context we're trying to understand what we're experiencing right now in these United States of America. Professor Horn, I, I did want to ask you the million-dollar question here, and that is, as we look at uh, the voter suppression, the censorship of books, the trying, uh, the attempt to erase American history and the uh, immoral and violent past that we've lived through, and of course the the courageous folks who who battled to win victories that uh, we all should be studying and, and learning from. Uh, when you look at history, are there lessons for us here in the United States today of how we can effectively challenge this reactionary movement and its its real roots in fascism? And it's very clear that's the direction the Republican Party has uh, is moving towards or has already entered. Well, the first question emerges from my preceding remarks, which is that one of the surest ways that we've been able to make progress uh, over the centuries is through lengthening the battlefield uh, by internationalizing the struggle. Uh, this has a lot to do with the very nature of settler colonialism which in many ways involves a kind of class collaboration between and amongst European settlers of poverty-stricken and working-class origins and the 1%, or the 0.000001%. And because of that class collaboration, which you see clearly from where I'm speaking to you from Texas, which many people on the left have tried to dismiss or deny, uh, this has caused uh, Frederick Douglass to spend more time, I'm speaking of the 19th century abolitionists who, of course, uh, resided in both Rochester, New York, and New Bedford, Massachusetts, to spend considerable time in London at the time when London and Washington were at sword's point. It's what led the great uh, socialist activist entertainer Paul Robeson uh, to spend considerable time in Moscow when the United States and the then Soviet Union uh, were at odds. So the problem here is, of course, that in order to effectuate that new internationalism, we're going to have to overcome a major hurdle, uh, which is not only the narrow provincialism that obtains in this country, but also if you look at the black community, which votes against the right nine to one, uh, larger by larger um, proportion than any other demographic, in order to win these concessions that emerge from the uh, what I call the Compromise of 1954, when the Supreme Court says that you know what. Uh, U.S. apartheid is unconstitutional, but the trade-off was throwing overboard 
the internationalists amongst us, including Paul Robeson, including Debbie E.B. Du Bois and their colleagues and comrades. And so the most, uh, the force most hostile to the right, speaking of the black community, is virtually absent with regard to this crisis that's unfolding on the Ukraine-Russian border. And in fact, what that does is that it empowers the hawks when you have this constituency removed from the battlefield, uh, which helps to explain uh, this hawkish bellicosity that bids fair to send the entire planet up in flames. Well, on, on that sobering note, <clears throat> we're, we're very appreciative of your time this, this morning, Dr. Horn. And thank you so much for all your scholarship, your, your many, many books uh, that we have yet to read, many of us. And uh, really appreciate you sharing your thoughts on these important issues with us this morning. So thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Take care. Bye-bye. That was uh, Gerald Horn, Moore's professor of history at the University of Houston. And we were talking about his book, The Counter-Revolution of 1776, Slave Resistance and the Origins of the United States of America. And uh, Dr. Horn actually introduced a topic, Richard, that I know you wanted to explore with our audience before we run out of time, and that is the current crisis in Ukraine. First of all, I should say that the way that crisis is being covered in our media is just shocking. You know, I mean, it's, I, it's, I guess I sh no one should be shocked after the way they corporate media covered all, all the conflicts that we've faced since the 1960s, the Vietnam War, uh, the war in Iraq, the adventures in Panama and Grenada of all places, and leading us up to, through the decades, uh, many others that I haven't mentioned, to this uh, current potentially devastating catastrophic confrontation with the Russian uh, military and their, and their nuclear force over Ukraine, a country which the United States really has no strategic interest in, other than as a part of their projection of hegemonistic control over, to extend that control over a larger part of the planet. So, uh, as I said, that this essay by Fukuyama in uh, 1989 sort of sounded the clarion call of American triumphalism, because it was like, there's nothing standing in the way of the United States from working its, having its way with the world. Uh, there are no, there's no, no worthy adversaries uh, to slow us down. And the neoliberals and, and neocons went on a kind of a rampage, opening up new markets in Eastern Europe and sending a team of cowboy capitalists, if you might uh, excuse me for that, to the former Soviet Union to show those uh, benighted souls the ways of uh, super exploitation and wealth accumulation. So therefore, it came as a rude awakening no doubt, when both Russia, China, and various other countries, such as North Korea, Iran, Syria, said, enough is enough, you know, basta, basta così. We do have our own agendas, and they're not the same as yours. And we have our own international geopolitical uh, imperatives, and we intend to uh, express them and act on them. So... The NATO expansion, which was like a sort of a, a pipe dream of George W. Bush, George H. W. Bush, and then was uh, promoted further by George W. Bush and pushed even further forward by Clinton, and finally began in earnest in the inclusion of Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic, which I believe took place in 2009, and uh, was soon followed by Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia. Lithuania, Romania, Slovenia, and Slovakia, yeah, which I think is, was the former Czech Republic. So these, these things came to pass, you know, in the 2000s, and um, there are now 30 uh, members, which uh, more than doubled the original number of membership in the organization. There are so many reasons why this was a bad idea not the least of which is that um, NATO was a way of incentivizing the liberalization of countries that had been uh, the, uh, the communist bloc, 
showing them that the U.S. still has a, uh, a mission in Europe, and it is, is a way that the U.S. of projecting power and checking alternative systems that Europe or the European Union and could uh, conceivably uh, muster or put forward. And so, to me, the situation where the United States is apparently willing to risk nuclear war by demanding that Ukraine have the right to join NATO, that is to say, or flip, flip the picture, that Mexico and, and or Canada would have the um, right to install uh, Russian or other uh, bases, military bases, that could be counterposed against the United States in, uh, in, in their countries. So we're proposing to turn NATO into a country which has an obligation to defend all the other 29 NATO states in conflicts. And there's a very much of a hair-trigger situation where a violation of Ukraine's quote-unquote sovereignty in terms of making that decision is can, can be very petty and small, such as, you know, a, a Russian propaganda campaign or a cyber attack. That could trigger the United States' uh, spate of sanctions, which is already extremely severe in Russia and would no doubt trigger retaliation of unknown but frightening proportion by Russia. So we're, we're, we're trapped in our own ignorance, uh, greed, and hegemonistic impulses here, and being led, as we always are, by a foreign policy establishment in the United States that just prioritizes expansion and domination before anything else. I'll take a breath there and let anybody else chime in if you care to. So, so we're substituting um, treaties for intermarriages, perhaps, and winding up with the same tangle of conflicting alliances and unwanted military postures that embroiled Europe and, and the United States in World War One. Eh? Yeah, I think I think that's there's truth there, and and you know when you really talk to foreign policy experts who are not under the sway of uh, the U.S. State Department or media pundits who are independent from the same influence, you learn that the Ukraine really has no strategic value to the United States mm -hmm. other than to be able to corral and threaten Russia from the West. It brings us right up to their border. We are, they already have several uh, former Soviet republics which are in, in NATO, which are crowding them on, on other portions. But Ukraine is a vast country, utterly ungovernable if the United States chose to you know, follow through and provoke a serious civil war there. And the Russians are aware of that, too. They, they don't want to go in, into Ukraine and get saddled with another Afghanistan, probably to the 10th power. And uh, the carnage and just utter devastation and, and failure that would occur if they attempted it. So this whole thing just strikes me as a uh, theatrical operation, similar to so many others that the United States has played in, in the Western countries and NATO in general. We need to speak out against it. And it's, it's just shocking to me that the U.S. journalism is failing us at this moment. Yeah. I just had a, a brief comment and maybe a, a, another topic I wanted to cover briefly, um, but it's true that the United States has a sphere of influence in the northern and southern hemisphere of the Americas, and over 100, 150 years, we've overthrown countless, I, I can't even mm -hmm. count the number of governments that the United States has overthrown who, who they perceived had an independent foreign policy or one that they thought was hostile. And, you know, we could look at the last coup that was fomented in Honduras, mm -hmm. but you go back all the way to dozens, literally dozens of governments overthrown and wars fought uh, the so-called Monroe Doctrine, which, you know, said the United States backyard is uh, is inviolable and cannot be, uh, you know, the Russians <laughs> and the United States, uh, Russians certainly have paid attention to the United States and its sphere of influence in the wars fought. And, uh, yeah, the hypocrisy is, is rife here. 
Yeah, and wouldn't it be wonderful if the result were some kind of happy family of nations, but it isn't. Mm. It would mm. just make a different kind of mess. I, I just wanted, well, we just have a couple of minutes left. I, I wanted to just reflect on the meeting of the Republican Party leadership in Salt Lake City, Utah, on February 4th, where the members of the Republican National Committee unanimously and officially declared that the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol to overturn the 2020 presidential election was, quote, legitimate political discourse. And this has been talked a lot about in recent days. But, you know, from from my vantage point, maybe many listeners, it appears that the Republican Party has moved from tacit support of the political violence that occurred on January 6th to full-throated official support for employing violent insurrection and domestic terrorism in the future as a means to gain and hold on to power. And these are not just words. They're actually uh, putting in place a team of uh, uh, tainted electors and uh, election officials to um, foment of some coup in the future. Um, and they also have an armed wing. Uh, the no political party in the United States, in my reading of history, has had an armed wing. Now we have a whole raft of uh, militia groups that regularly show up at political rallies with uh, semi-automatic weapons and body armor. This is, uh, you know, people talk about the concern over a civil war in our future, and um, I, th- I think we're very close. Thanks, Scott. And with that, we need to wrap up. Yes. The Resistance yes. Roundtable will be back in, I guess, two weeks or so, 10 to 11 a.m. on a Saturday morning. Thank you, Richard. On this day in black history, February 12, 1909, Moorfield Story, Mary White Ovington, and W.E.B. Dubois form the NAACP, an African-American civil rights organization. Its mission is to ensure the political, educational, social, and economic equality of rights of all persons and to eliminate racial hatred and racial discrimination. 